From Brooklyn, New York, I'm Adam Teeter. From Jersey City, I'm Erica Ducey. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. Guys, what's going on today? How are we doing? Feeling okay? Yeah, doing doing all right. It's getting getting cold here, but uh, that's our uh, a weather topic that some people complain about. <laughs> oh, I didn't even I didn't I didn't even notice. So I feel like it's warm. But anyways, <laughs> well, when you never leave your house, it uh, the temperature doesn't change a whole lot. No, but I mean, you guys get into anything cool recently? Like I know we always talk about it at the top now what we're drinking, but you know before we get into that. Just you know, anything anything else on your minds, or we just want to get right into talking about drinks. Man, it's been it's been work and drinks and moving, <laughs> moving. So I I don't have much beyond that. <laughs> yeah, I've been grappling with, and Eric, I'm curious your thoughts on this. I've been grappling with whether uh, to take my son trick or treating this year. He's not, so he's just over two, so he's not really old enough to like anticipate halloween like we did it last year but he didn't really know what was going on and it's not like he could eat candy like this year we would maybe give him a tiny little bit and i'm sure he would enjoy some of it but like it's a really shitty year to talk about like going to other people's houses and like knocking on the door are they even allowing are they allowing it i don't know if if places are you know able to forbid it really but uh i think that i've seen some advertising for um you know, festivals and like these things are just going to be packed. And so I think we're, we're going to skip it this year. And, you know, we may do a little backyard um, thing with some friends, but I think it's just going to be very small. And um, I think we're just going to recycle last year's Halloween costumes for kids. Yeah. We're, we're, I mean, again, like I said, it's sort of the privilege, I guess, of having a kid this age is like, he, he doesn't, know what he's would be missing out on yet <laughs> so yeah. it's like if there were a year where we weren't doing anything i don't think he would really care well we have like a we had a costume order sort of picked out so we'll we'll dress him up in that and you know i don't know maybe we'll maybe we'll go for a walk uh but i don't yeah i just i think like there are people talking about ways to do like socially distanced like trick-or-treating and i think if i had a seven-year-old that might be more of a thing that I felt like I needed to do for them because they would probably not appreciate missing a Halloween. But with a two-year-old, eh, we're just gonna we'll start at three, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I and mean, that's not my problem. But uh, I, <laughs> I mean, I, I am wondering if I'm supposed to have candy at my apartment for people. But I think our building, I think our building is forbidding it. So I have no idea. Our building's like been very careful. So um, I, I, I don't think I'm gonna see much of that this year. And then all the parties are not gonna happen. So and that's a that's a bummer. So I'm just gonna watch yeah. scary movies and you know try to freak myself out. Um, but that's about it. Do you need any help freaking yourself out in 2020, man? Just turn on the fucking news. No, I mean like, yeah, there's like freak yourself out, like in a just way that's fun to be scared. Then there's like freak yourself out in a like really, truly scared. I'm already really, truly scared. I just like to have like, do you know what I mean? Uh, like I don't even, yeah. Like I don't even want to think about this fucking election anymore. Um, I just want it to be over, uh, you know, obviously in a positive way. Um, but yeah, it's so yes, I'm freaked out in that way already. Uh, but I would rather, you know, just watch some, some scary, creepy shit uh, and, th- and think about that and go back to a time when like that was the thing we were scared about was like this idea that zombies could roam the earth, um, you know, so instead of the one that's in the White House. As, so, we, as we call them the good old days. Yeah. The good old days. Yeah. What are you guys drinking, though? 
So uh, I just um, this week published a uh, a piece on vine pear that was about um, the Pinot Noir revolution in uh, New Zealand, the Central Otago Pinot Noirs that were actually the wines that um, I mentioned, uh, I think in last week's podcast, they're the ones that really made me fall in love with wine. So uh, I was sipping through some of those and my, the top contender uh, for me was Ripon, which is um, this beautiful uh, winery right um, in uh, Wanaka, and it's on uh, this incredible lake. It's one of the most photographed vineyards in the world. And um, the family there has been making wine for many generations. It's the Mills family. Nick and Joe Mills um, are the winemakers. And it's it's incredible. It's I think if you saw this place online, you would be blown away. But the the family now has been farming vines there for three uh, generations, and it's biodynamically farmed. It's you know without irrigation on its own rooted vines. I mean, this wine that I'm drinking, which is their mature vine Pinot Noir, it is dense and precise. It's got these incredible layers of flavors that evolve. It's just, you know, this beautiful, beautiful wine. And it's uh, an example of one of the the wines that I talk about that uh, has really been um, a benchmark in the revolution of uh, Pinot Noirs in Central Otago. Very cool. Uh, Zach? Well, you know, I what have I been drinking? I think the thing that I've been drinking the most lately has been a lot of California Zinfandel. Like I, it's, it's one of these, like I, for some reason this time of year, like fall into like maybe like the beginning of winter is like, is a time when I really start to transition like into these sort of more robust red wines. But like Zinfandel to me, like good Zinfandel has this characteristic where like it is, it has a, it's, it's definitely like, you know, it's it's red wine. It's pretty powerful. Some of them are pretty high in alcohol, but they they have this kind of interesting fresh quality to them that feels kind of like a fall like afternoon to me. And 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 I just I kind of dig it. And so uh, like I think probably mostly um, some combination of Ridge, Turley, and Raffinelli because those are kind of the ones I tend to buy. Um, but there are other great producers out there and, and it's just been, I don't know, like it was a, when I got into studying wine, it was like, you know, uh, one of the things that, you know, you could get on a blind tasting exam. And I was always like, oh, you know, Zinfandel, who cares? And, uh, like a lot of other things, uh, that I thought when I was younger and maybe more of an asshole, uh, I, I've come back to it and been like, you know what? I really actually like Zinfandel. Like it has a place and I enjoy drinking it, uh, from time to time. Cool. Nice. Uh, so in the course of the last week, I at t- on two separate occasions at two different bars wound up ordering the Jungle Bird, mm-hmm. and oh, yeah. yeah, it's a delicious cocktail. And I've like kind of rediscovered. It. I was like, wow, like how have I not had this more often? And I think it's like one of those cocktails where if you're trying to understand tiki, it's just one of the easier ones to make, right? It's five ingredients, so it's it's super simple, right? It's uh, Campari rum, I mean, specified Jamaican, but you know, whatever, um, you know, simple syrup, lime juice and pineapple juice. And it's, it's just absolutely de- delicious. Um, and so, yeah, it was just, it's just so funny that that happened to me twice in one week. And I was like, well, why haven't I drinking this more? So I would encourage everyone else to, to, to drink, you know, more jungle birds. It also made me feel like I wasn't, you know, stuck in New York, you know, worrying about numbers rising. So that was also <laughs> nice. That yeah. was also really nice. Um, so we're going to get into today's topic. Um, Zach, we got a, we got a, a little little listener email recently that, that, that piqued this, uh, our interest and, and made us talk about 
what we're going to talk about today. So you want to want to give us a little summary? Absolutely. So thanks to Matt uh, for sending listening, first of all, and then emailing us, which you all can do, podcast at vinepair.com. Um, and his question was basically sort of like, He's seen these various stories. I think we've all seen these stories from time to time that pop up on, uh, you know, whether it's a social media a publication we frequent, whatever, that essentially make some kind of claim about one of two kind of related things. One is that, you know, oh, some study shows that wine professionals can't tell the difference between good or bad wine um, in a, you know, sort of a controlled setting, uh, potentially. Or alternatively, oh, you know, people who are rating wines for competitions, you know, if you pour them the same wine twice, they'll give it two, often they'll give it two different scores, or at least there's no strong correlation that if you have them taste the same wine multiple times, that they will give it the same score over and over again. And 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 all of these pieces sort of get at a, a fundamental uh, argument, I suppose, which is that wine professionals are full of shit. And as three <laughs> wine professionals, um, you know, I, 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 like, I'll be honest, for me personally, there's, you know, there's an, an, a natural instinct to be a little defensive in these settings. You know, people are, are, you know, taking shots at what I do for a living in one form or another. Uh, but, but I think that that it does raise a very interesting question that I think we'll probably get to in a minute, which is like, well, how do we decide if wine is good or bad? You know, what is it? What is that about? Um, and and so I think maybe we can start by talking a little bit about the, these questions and these examples, and then we can each kind of talk about what makes a wine good or bad to us, because I think there's room for different interpretations. Yeah, I mean, so first of all, I, I'm not a professional. Um, I'm an enthusiast or someone who's like interested, like loves wine. But I feel like that's that's where a lot of this can get tricky is that I think there is a lot about most things when it comes to food and drink that is subjective. Do I think that it's very easy to be able to tell something that's mass produced or just not well made? Yes, I absolutely do. Um, I was just having this conversation earlier today with, with another writer. Like I think being able to, to pick out like this is definitely you know, unbalanced or just bad, right? Like when you're, when you're judging a food competition, you can be like, you just didn't, you didn't follow a recipe. Like you overcooked the beef type thing, right? That's easy. Um, and I think there is something to that. I do think though, I've been in situations where I've watched, uh, you know, at, at wine competition and things, judges judge things differently two times. And I think that I've been involved in conversations where there've been massive arguments between those judges in terms of what constitutes something as being good. And every time it, the, the people never agree. There's, there always seems to be a lot of subjectivity, which I don't think is bad, which is why, you know, we've always said at Vinepair, like you need to find a wine merchant you trust or a, you know, another wine professional you trust. If you're looking for someone to help you with discovery and follow their, you know, follow what they like. Because it may be very different than what someone else likes, you know, and that's okay unless you're at a, you know, at a place where the one person at the top's palette has been decreed to be the palette everyone is supposed to follow, which, you know, we know it was true with Robert Parker at Wine Advocate. We know to some extent it's pretty true at, at Wine Spectator with Marvin Schenken's palette. But for the most part, like it's very subjective even among tasting groups in terms of what people's palates, you know, say and what, what one person likes over another. So, I don't know. It's it's that's why the, these studies are also always really funny to me because of course people are going to have different opinions. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I'd say from my perspective, I think that there's you could break it down. So there's 
the technical side of wine and winemaking. Um, and that would be, you know, having high quality grapes, you know, without some combination of vine age, the terroir where it's planted and like probably the vintage conditions. So, you know, I think you can make like, I think I've seen a quote somewhere from Mondavi who said, uh, uh, you know, you can, you can make uh, great wine from, or you can never make great wine from mediocre grapes, but you can, you know, make mediocre wine from great grapes or I don't know, something like that. But the point being that like, you have to have the good material to create a great wine. You can't ever have, you can't ever start out with like bad material, bad grapes right. and end up with like a fantastic wine. It's just not, um, possible. So, you know, you've got high quality grapes, that's uh, a threshold. And then I think there's the great winemaking. So winemakers skill. And when winemakers are focused on making a wine that really expresses a sense of place, I think those wines to me stand out. <clears throat> so those are the tangibles. And then I think the intangibles are like this kind of style or this X factor of wine, which is very personal. You know, it's the reason that some people collect first growth Bordeaux wines while others are, you know, coveting the Grand Cru's of Burgundy. You know, people just like different styles of wine. Both of them are super high quality wines, best, some of the best wines in the world. Um, but some people look for opulent wines. Some people look for mineral driven wines. Some people want wines that are precise and detailed. Other people want power. So these are all qualities in wine that some love and others dislike. And uh, in, a, in a competition setting, you can really see that come through. So um, in, in the, a lot of the competitions that I've judged, you know, you may be trying 60 wines uh, in, a, in a day. And there's no question that there's some palate fatigue. And, you know, you, um, I mean, after a while, things are starting to really uh, taste alike. And then you're looking for like the outlying wines, but do those outliers denote quality? I don't know. So there's a lot of questions in that. And I think one successful thing I've seen competitions do is to have, you know, six or eight tasters tasting through the same flights of wine, the top and the bottom scores are thrown out. And then there's a, a, a discussion with all the other um, judges about the, the numbers that remain. So like, and what, what number do you get to? Can you get to, let's say it's judged like, you know, someone gives it a 90 and someone gives it like an 84 and the 84 isn't budging. So, you know, sometimes you'll go back and forth. You can go back and forth for a while, defending the different attributes of that bottle. And then uh, sometimes it'll get taken out of the room and they'll say, okay, you guys are done. Like this room can't come to an agreement and it'll be taken to a different team of tasters. So I think that's one successful way that I've seen of kind of mitigating, um, that bias. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, there's a huge amount of subjectivity in wine that uh, is the beauty of wine, frankly. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, Erica, your example of competitions, because I've judged a number myself too, is a really good one and an important thing for our listeners, especially those who maybe don't uh, have as much personal experience with that to, to take note of is, you know, wine competitions, in my opinion, are pretty much worthless. Like, totally. I've judged I agree. <laughs> I've judged plenty. And they're just the the honest truth of it is like, you know, 
Erica has given a very, very um, professional, uh, diplomatic <laughs> explanation of how these things are handled. But honestly, a lot of the, the competitions I've been a part of, it's like, here is your day long slate. Here are hundreds of wines, potentially, or, or at least 100 wines. Over yeah, the when you said day. 60, I was like, whoa, that's a very good competition. <laughs> I've judged 300 in one day. Oh, that's too much. It's way too much. But yeah. but they don't want to turn anyone away. He wants to pay to 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 submit. So anyway, sorry, yeah, exactly. that's okay. No no no. You, you're you're bringing up good points. One yeah. of them is that many of these are sort of pay to play competitions. Yeah. In the first part, and the second part is like as Erica said, as we've all said in one way or another on, on this podcast and previous ones. You know, wine, as with all things drinks related, is inherently at least largely subjective. And I and I do think, and, and maybe we'll come to this in a minute, that there are some objective criteria that can, to some extent, delineate bad wine from good wine. But frankly, a lot of those things are hard to distinguish in the context of a wine competition. You know, the things Erica talked about, the provenance of the grapes, the, the you know, whether wines are made in an organic or made from organic grapes, or, you know, what kind of labor practices the winery uses. I mean, sadly, those things don't often or always translate into the glass, especially blind. And so, you know, I, I think informed uh, buyers and consumers and frankly, journalists should be aware of those things in most settings. But, you know, the point of a wine competition or wine judging is to strip all that away and just put the wine in a glass and and have you rate them. And and again, I don't really know what the point of it is, right? Because, because and this comes back to something that I, I came to when I was working as a sommelier and, and became a very important thing for me when, when I talked to and trained servers and, and talked to guests, frankly, which is like, everyone wants to know, oh, what's the best wine? And I mean, that whole concept is, to me, ridiculous. And you think about it in, in many of the other aesthetic pursuits that we take on. I mean, who says, like, what's the best painting on the planet? No, I mean, yeah. Like, well, you, mm-hmm. you, could say, you could say, well, such and such Van Gogh sold for the most money at auction. But I don't think any of us would say, you know, that that's, an, a, that's a criteria that we want to stick to. There are the most expensive wines on the planet. I don't think those are inherently the best. We could say there are the rarest wines on the planet. Again, I'm not sure those are the best. There could be a wine that gets the highest score in a in a you know in a review setting or in a judgment setting and and again i don't think those are particularly inherently good because the beautiful thing about wine is we don't have to pick just one right <laughs> you can drink lots of different wines in a given day in a given year in a given lifetime and and when we get too fixated on well is this better than that I just, to me, you lose the point of the whole thing. Again, it's just, you know, if you only could look at one painting for the rest of your life, it would be a really shitty life. Like, thank God yeah. we don't, we're not stuck with that. At least it might be a painting that you, uh, you know, you like, right? So maybe it's the wine you like. I think your, your painting uh, sort of example is really a good one. Um, and one that I, so I learned something recently uh, about the gallery world, and I never knew this. And I think that it's really applicable to wine because, I find people can kind of understand – I think a lot of us really understand that we don't understand art, right? And that there are some people that claim to in certain ways or whatever, and a lot of people feel intimidated by art. I never realized that there are some painters, right, who are at this point on the market selling, let's say, a million dollars a piece, right, that are not considered to be serious enough to ever be shown in a museum. And that sometimes that's a career choice that an artist has to make, right? Make art – that is serious enough that museum curators take it seriously, but maybe collectors don't because it's not poppy enough or it's not, you know, in the style of the day right now. Uh, so they don't make that kind of work, but they make work that, you know, is sort of shows their sense of place, if you will. Right. But th- they're not ever going to sell for millions of dollars, or maybe it's going to take a long time throughout their career until they get there. Right. Whereas there are certain people that immediately come on the scene, they make, you know, millions of dollars, the market throws them up, 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 up. We know lots of wines that that's happened to too. Right. But, 
there's other people that just never think that 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 artist is serious and that artist may may never have a major show or if they do it may come only because eventually the market's just so robust and the the example for me that was given to me is murakami right the market's just so robust that finally brooklyn museum decides to do a show because they feel like well now we got to bring people in because they've all heard about this person so i think that that can happen as well in wine, right? There's just because a bunch of people are excited about it doesn't mean it's the best wine. It means that there's a bunch of people excited about it. there could be other people that aren't excited about that wine. And one of the things this this could also be a, a podcast we title "What's Wrong with Wine Competitions?" <laughs> but yeah. you know, I mean, like it is interesting. First of all, I've never been in a wine competition where one personality doesn't dominate the table. Um, usually it's like the person who is either the MS or whatever, everyone just kind of defers to. And I don't mean dominate, like they can be bullyish, just that like people start deferring to them because that's just kind of what happens. And group think takes over the table, usually most of the time. And also there's always disagreement about what was a flaw and now may not be a flaw, right? There, there's a lot of people that still very strongly believe that Bretonomyces is a flaw. Yeah. Right. And then if that's on the wine, that the wine should get scored poorly. There's now other people because of the explosion of natural wine that think that that is an acceptable characteristic and that, that it adds to complexity of the wine. And I've seen fights break out among people who've been like, I don't agree with you. Like you're wrong. This is this, the, the winemaker allowed a flaw to come into the wine. The wine is flawed. The, the wine should be sometimes thrown out. Right. And other people saying, no, this is adding complexity. This wine to me is a 95. <laughs> right. So I think that's a, you know, just illustrates that. It's very hard. And when we start saying, you know, this group, you know, these things happen and these scores happen, whatever, it it can be very difficult, which is why I think the only way that it works is when you know it's one individual critic or one individual person and you've come to trust them, right? So you, you tend to agree with their palate and you've bought other things that they've recommended. And then you're like, okay, cool. Like I like, so for example, Keith, right? Our tasting director, you're like, I like what Keith likes to drink and everything that I've ever had that he's rated well, I thought was absolutely delicious. And so I'm going to keep trusting, you know, the things that he recommends, but you know, you could find someone else that, that is a polar opposite of Keith, right. And recommends things that Keith never recommends, right. And follow that person instead. And I think that's, that's more of what's truth in terms of when you're looking at wine scores or, or wine reviews than just thinking that like one person, like Keith's 100 must mean that everyone else would agree that the wine's 100. I also think an important point to remember here, and and it's a question I specifically wanted to ask Erica, um, is like, you know, setting and context are hugely important for how we enjoy wine. And that, you know, to come back to the question that Matt posed at the beginning of, of you know, some of these studies, not so much judgings, but, but you know, sort of almost, you know, either actually scientific or sort of quasi-scientific studies trying to get at, you know, can people actually dis- distinguish between you know, things from a sensory perspective, often with taste, but not exclusively, is like wine in particular is something that's so um, sensitive to the context in which you enjoy it. I mean, Adam, you and I did a podcast a while back about, you know, talking about glassware and whether that shit mattered. And I think we mostly said no, but you know, if you get your wine served to you, and I've had this experience, and Eric, I'm wondering if, if you've had it. You know, if you if you go to one of these sensory labs where people are are, are sort of learning about wine more uh, academically, you know, you can do these things where you get wine poured to you in a black glass, and so you can't tell the color of it at all. Or you can get wine served to you in a you know totally in a room that they've completely purged of any 
smells. So it's you, there's literally nothing in there. I mean, I guess you, um, but there's nothing else in there that you could get be getting confused by. Or you know, there you can get wines with uh, various extracts added to them that affect the smell or taste. Have Eric or Adam, I suppose, um, have either of you ever had that experience? I haven't tried that, but, um, you know, I, in a sensory lab, but I have sipped out of just like black glasses before just to see what, you know, what it would be like. And, um, you know, from my perspective, I think it's, it it is very reliant. Like I, uh, um, trying two wines, like one in a black glass and one in uh, a glass where you can see through, I think, you know, our brains function in a way of we're very predictive. So you look at a glass of red wine, for example, and you're already thinking red berries, blackberries, you know, you're you're thinking through uh, the different flavors that you're likely to encounter. And when you're just, you know, sipping from a black glass, you know, you can be smelling it, but then you're questioning what you're smelling. So you're, you're wondering if, if really those things are there when, uh, when you see it, you know, in, in the the clear glass, it's, you know, you're pretty sure that it's there. And so then you feel much more, I guess, confident in making that assertion about what's in the glass, because you know that no matter what, you know, if you kind of go with whatever the characteristics of red wines are, like there kind of is no wrong answer. Everyone kind of tastes a little bit something different. And like, if you were to say, no, 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 this is all red fruit. This is like raspberry and currants and whatever. And someone else was like, oh no, no, I'm getting like plums all the way. You know, it's not like someone would tell you that you're wrong. Right. I agree. And I think also to that point, you know, this comes back to this whole question of these sort of attempts at disproving wine expertise. No one drinks wine out of a black glass in a dark room, like for pleasure. (laughs) So like, I, I, this is, I mean, this comes back a little bit to a gripe that I have in general, which is like, you know, there are some objective things that you can say about wine and maybe some things that I think that most people would say are um, hallmarks of quality um, versus, you know, maybe not hallmarks of quality. But so much of this is experiential and driven by everything else around us in our enjoyment or or lack of enjoyment of a wine is driven not just by what's in the glass, but who we're with, what we're eating, if we are eating, how hungry or, you know, how tired we are, you know, are we angry already? You know, like all this other stuff is like so important to our in- experience, not just with wine, of course, with almost anything, but but to say that, you know, because you can fool people through whether it's, you know, you know, opaque glassware or, you know, misleading um, scenarios or all that stuff, like, of course, right? None of us are a sensory machine. We are not designed to be able to consistently respond to the same kind of sensory stimulus the same way. Like life would be very boring if we did that. Um, And so again, I I think that, you know, there's an attempt in these things to, to to sort of discredit the idea of expertise and, and look a little bit of taking the piss out of wine professionals is fine. Like we can be a kind of pompous group in general. Um, And so I don't mind that, but I do think that it's important to, to still note that like, that doesn't mean that there isn't any difference between wines. Like wines are different things and there are different levels of quality. And some of that quality is, you know, objective in some sense. Some of it is, you know, maybe aesthetic or even political, you know, you might consider 
organic wine to be an important thing to champion because of what it means for the future of agriculture on our planet. Um, and, and you might be willing to say that an organic wine is inherently better, even if taste-wise it's indistinguishable. Um, I think I would maybe make that argument, frankly. But but again, to come to this idea that like because you can trick people means that there is no such thing as expertise is, I think, kind of silly, even if many of the applications for that expertise are, I think, it's also kind of silly. Well, but I think, okay, so I agree with you, but I think we have to also wonder why is there this obsession amongst other publications, you know, not usually not publications that write about spirit, you know, wine, spirits, et cetera, but among the buzzfeeds of the world, et cetera, to, to publish these articles about how like, you know, so-and-so got tricked. And I think what it comes down to is that there is this lack of something we could all learn which is there's this lack of willingness amongst professionals in a lot of areas to admit when they are wrong or just aren't really sure or you know maybe you know uh, could see someone else's preference compared to theirs right and because that doesn't happen that often in a lot of industries where someone you know is paid to be a quote unquote expert people want to go after them right so that's why it happens so often i mean i i think about the i think we've talked about before on the podcast Zach that one sommelier uh, on Instagram a few years ago who had posted a bottle, you know, a very famous bottle of wine. And someone said they were pretty positive that it was, you know, a, a counterfeit from yeah. Peruanian, right? And and the Psalm responded, don't tell me I've drunk, you know, so many of these wines. And it was, you know, <laughs> DRC. I know what it tastes like. You know what I mean? It's like, you, or, or they could have just run back, hey, that, that's a really, you know, that's an interesting point. Like I'll have to look into it. Not sure. It definitely tasted like it to me, but, you know, you could have a point. You know, it turns out actually then later on, Someone realized that it, you know they saw the, the markings that it was one of the counterfeit ones, right? But it's like it's it's just that uh, that unwillingness to just say you know maybe maybe you're right, maybe I'm wrong, or I totally see what your opinion is, as opposed to saying oh I can't understand why you like that, you know this yeah. is just not good, you know I think that that is why other publications and other people kind of want to see some of those those personalities taken to task because it's kind of fun <laughs> to finally be like see you don't know everything, so stop making me feel like shit about it. Right. And I think like the the key thing for our listeners to, you know, know is that good wine is wine that you like. Yep. And as a professional, I I find a special joy in finding the best value wines. So when I find like, you know, a, a Carignan wine from like Brock Cellars in Berkeley, California, you know, that's like made from, you know, somewhere on the coast, like that delivers for under $20. I'm way more excited about sharing that with people and like getting people excited about that wine than I am about a hundred dollar Barolo. Like it's just a more exciting find for me to, you know, be like, here's an amazing value. Like I love it. I hope you'll love it. And that's, I think that's like where the joy of wine um, comes for me that maybe doesn't come for, I don't know, other people, because I don't know, I'm just not like a trophy hunter type of um, wine drinker. I do love to try good wines, but I just don't think that, um, you know, as a, as a writer, as an editor, that I get as much joy out of, uh, you know, recommending expensive bottles. I just don't. Yeah. 
And I think this is actually one last good point to come back to why there's always such interest in sort of upturning the apple cart uh, in wine. And it's that, you know, we already have done that. The the hierarchies that existed in the world of wine 40, 50, 60 years ago have largely been overturned. I mean, not on the not necessarily price wise, because as Erica mentioned earlier, you know, first growth Bordeaux, Grand Cru Burgundy, those wines still sell for more money than basically anything else out there. You know, maybe some Colton Abba Cab, et cetera. But, but from the consumption side and from where most people are, oriented which is not the collection market that like the world of wine is much bigger than it used to be the established hierarchies are much less meaningful in a lot of ways and and someone like erica can can legitimately reference and recommend uh a pretty obscure southern french variety or actually think maybe technically spanish variety uh from a place in california that most people have never heard of and and consider it to be uh, on par with or better than you know a very famous wine region in italy and and i'm not i don't disagreeing with erica at all i think the point though is that when you have this world of 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 sort of lack of of an established hierarchy, you have a lot of people who want to step in and say, "Ah, allow me to be the expert. Allow me to be the, the one who will reimpose hierarchy." And and a lot of people recoil against that. You know, they they don't want to be told by someone who they don't know and don't trust that they're wrong, and that and that they want to continue to enjoy what they enjoy. And and so that makes that makes the kind of wine professional. You know, wine's obviously a. a an area where people are already sensitive to the idea that they don't know what they're doing, because that's, I think, probably something we all hear more than anything else from wine drinkers. It's mm-hmm. like they're, they're concerned they don't know what they're doing. So anything that helps kind of level that playing field for them, I think is going to, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to get clicks. It's going to get us to talk about it to some extent, right? And, and, I, and I get it. But I, I also agree with what Erica said, which is like, in the end, you know, you as a, as a wine drinker out there need to decide what you're in this for. And if you're in this for enjoyment then you know take everyone's recommendations with a grain of salt like adam said find a find a reviewer or a or a or a professional whose palate you seem to align with try multiple people's suggestions you know maybe you don't like carignan um and you don't like erica's recommendations uh and maybe you prefer someone else's like that's cool too um but i think like you know where where it comes down to is just you know th- there's so little point in in just blindly following um you know someone's lead without without you know, sort of fact checking, but you can fact check or you can, you know, sort of address these questions critically without sort of dismissing the whole idea that anyone knows anything. Exactly. You know, there's, it's okay if, you know, if you've been told that everyone loves Riesling that's in the wine community and you don't, you know, that's okay. Um, and you shouldn't be made bad to, to feel bad if, if that's, if that's the case, that's your preference, right? I feel like we should be encouraged to like the things we like and get to explore those things in wine more because that's what's going to make for a better wine community as opposed to everyone being told that we have to gravitate to these these core wineries or these core regions or whatever and that that's just the way because that's just going to continue i think to leave people out definitely absolutely all right guys well this has been another very great conversation um you know can't wait to talk again next week and for everyone out there like like Zach said, we love getting these emails. Uh, they're they're great, you know, conversation stars for us, and and oftentimes they do turn into you know the the topic of focus on a podcast. So please email us at podcast at and let us know what you want to hear about. And Zach, Erica, I'll see you here next week. See you then. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair podcast. If you enjoy listening to us every week, please leave us a review or rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and hosted by Zach Jabal, 
Erica Ducey, and me, Adam Teeter. Our engineer is Nick Patry and Keith Beavers. I'd also like to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, and the rest of the VinePair team for their support. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again right here next week.